you hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. There's a lot of talk today about immigrants coming to the United States, but there's not a lot of talk about their lived experiences, and there's practically no discussion about their personal financial experiences. If you're concerned about the plight of U.S. immigrants and their opportunity to achieve the American dream, today's Queer Money is for you. We're talking today with Adina of Immigrant Finance. Adina shares the challenges and struggles of immigrants coming to the U.S. today, including their challenges integrating into our financial system. Adina knows very well of what she speaks. Not only is Adina an immigration attorney, her husband recently immigrated to the United States himself and experienced many of the challenges that we discussed today. Before we get started on this important topic, we want to let you know that this episode of Queer Money is being brought to you by the Debt Free Guys Budget Buster Bundle. Many of you have told us that your tired, static budgets are simply not working, that they're too restrictive and antiquated. The Budget Buster Bundle is our four-step solution to creating the life of your dreams. You can take four steps, can't you? The Budget Buster Bundle is for you and available right now, so there's no reason to not get your financial life back on track. For more information, go to debtfreeguys.com forward slash budget buster. Now, on with the show. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. All right. So Adina from Immigrant Finance, thank you for coming on the show. Welcome to Queer Money. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to chat. Definitely. We appreciate your coming. Now, what I find so interesting and one of the reasons we definitely have you on the show is you're serving a very specific, very niched audience. And that's right. It's amazing that in the world we live in today where there are billions of people that it's it's so easy for us to be able to say I'm going to serve a very specific audience and without getting political <laughs> it's very uh, very apparent that this is an audience in our society today that needs assistance. And I'm referring to, in general, the immigrant population in the United States. But then, you know, if we even take it a step further, the LGBT immigrant population in the United States, Mm -hmm. there's a massive need of not just assistance, but I think awareness. And so that's part of the reason why we welcome you to the Queer Money Show. Thanks again for coming on. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's, it's awesome to be able to have a chance to connect. And as I've told you all before, I'm just really inspired of what you've done for the LGBTQ community. And it's been really hopeful, I think, what could be done for the immigrant community to spread that message of empowering people to really be able to stand up for their rights and have the resources to do so. Yeah, it can absolutely be done. Right. And I love what you just said there, this whole idea of conveying some information and empowering people. And that's the purpose of the Queer Money Podcast is to convey information, especially stories of success or tips that help people improve their lives and get better, especially financially. So when we look at the immigrant population, so what's it like for an immigrant, and I know that you have some personal experience here. What's it like for an immigrant, whether they're documented or not, coming into the United States and wanting to participate, not only in just in general in American society, but especially in the financial industry? Yeah, definitely. I'm happy to talk about that. And um, I'll just be careful to say I don't want to generalize for anyone, but um, I'll tell you experiences. You know, I've seen um, 
My husband is an immigrant who moved to the U.S. about six years ago. So I most directly saw with him by, you know, by his side. And also by day, um, I'm an immigration lawyer. So I've seen with hundreds of clients how they've navigated the various systems in our country. Um, I think the main thing is, you know, people who are coming from other countries just aren't familiar with our system. It's already super complicated even for Americans to figure out the financial system and, and basic things like being able to budget and have a bank account. So imagine if you don't speak the language, if you have immigration status that's uncertain or you don't have any. A lot of people are coming from countries where the banks absolutely cannot be trusted. Um, and so there's a lot of fear about banks and it's actually safer for a lot of people by habit to not be using financial systems and to like really save their cash under their bed or their <laughs> closet or, you know, in the cookie jar or whatever. So I think there's all that going on. Plus a lot of immigrants, you know, are coming from countries where credit's not really used. Like I know um, where my husband's from, they don't really use credit cards. So he had never had one when he came to the U.S. and he had no history of credit. So we had to figure out how he could get like a starter credit card and things like that. And this is someone who speaks English and like has a graduate degree. So imagine where a lot of other immigrants are facing. Um, and, you know, I think for a lot of people, like they don't realize this is going to be another barrier to being able to have, a, you know, decent life of with dignity um, in this country. Like people go through the very difficult immigration system and a lot of times don't know there's going to be something else after that that could be just as hard right. with figuring out how to navigate money. Absolutely. It was interesting. We were talking to a woman from the UK at the NGLCC conference in Philadelphia in August, and and she's mm -hmm. over here working temporarily. I think that she has a one-year uh, working visa. And that was one of her questions to us was, how do I get a credit card? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, how do I create a credit history? And here's a woman who lives in the UK, speaks English, has no problem communicating with bankers or financial services, and she's right. struggling. Like you said, that's just it's just punctuated by the fact that someone may be from a non-English speaking country. They may be coming from a country that doesn't have credit cards, which I would say one side, I would cheer that because <laughs> <laughs> it seems to be a major obstacle for so many people learning how to use them. But yeah. all of those compounding things could make it much more difficult for an immigrant. It's important then that we kind of share this topic or broach this topic with people, not only in the LGBT community, but in the population in general, that we may want to be careful. We may want to be supportive. We may want to be understanding when we're working with someone or dealing with someone who is an immigrant. So what are some of the differences that you see that when someone comes to the United States, I mean, we've talked about this idea of them not using credit cards or maybe not familiar with our system. What are kind of some of the differences that you're seeing when you're working with individuals or through your blog, the questions that you get? What kind of some of these kind of differences that we should be aware of that may maybe make it easier for us to help someone like that? You know, I think one big difference is, you know, what in the personal finance world people refer to as the scarcity mindset. Mm -hmm. When you don't know how to navigate the financial system and you may or may not have 
legal status. You have a lot of concerns going on, a lot of things you're worried about, and you limited job opportunities, limited ability to work, limited ability to assert your rights. So it's really easy to be kind of in fear mode all the time, um, kind of fight or flight. It's easy to, you know, have to live paycheck to paycheck. And never have any savings or the ability to build up a saving so that, you know, every time something happens, like a health scare, medical bills, a car accident, it can just throw people into debt and really destroy their lives and make it, uh, you know, just a vicious cycle very easy. So I think keeping in mind that, you know, immigrants in particular and immigrants who are part of the LGBT community have different concerns going on sometimes, you know, have different risks that they're facing. And, you know, every person's different, but for someone, their main priority might be making sure that they don't have to face immigration court and face deportation. And that might be their number one concern. Whereas another immigrant might be, how can I, thinking about how can I make sure to send as much money as possible back to my family who needs it more than me? Even though I'm having a hard time paying the bills, they need it more because they can't eat, things like that. So um, there's just a lot of stuff going on in addition to all the factors that, you know, any American faces with personal finance issues. As an immigration attorney, can you explain, is there any finance education that's provided to immigrants when they come over to the United States? Oh, I have not seen that. Um, (laughs) It's a really big gap in the system. I mean, like Americans don't even really learn it in school, right? (laughs) True. (laughs) But it's one Um, thing to kind of grow up in the culture and to kind of maybe see your mom and dad engage in the banking system or how your neighbors and other family members might engage in the banking system. It's another thing to come over here and at the same time learning the culture and maybe learning the language and all that than to also understand how our banking system works and how money works. And you might realize that you need a credit card, but do you understand exactly how it works and what it does? And it's just a little bit different if you haven't had that experience growing up. Yeah, I would say like the strongest source of resources in that have um, that I've seen are the immigrant communities themselves. You know, there are some really savvy people out there and there are some people who are super, super smart, even if they don't have any education that can figure stuff out and share that with their community. So I do think people are resilient, people are resourceful and They learn often through their communities, at least the basics of how to make things work. Like you'll be surprised how much some people do know. But that being said, like the broad aspects of personal finance are not being talked about in a lot of communities, even for upper class or middle class Americans who've had every opportunity, you know. So, yeah, I think it's just it, it can be hit or miss with people what folks they've been in contact with and what they've been able to figure out just by being resourceful. Right. It just seems like it's it's mutually beneficial for our government to provide this kind of education to immigrants <laughs> because we, our social services systems are already stretched thin. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we, you know, to the extent that we can help people not be on those systems, the more beneficial it is for everybody. So, but of course that same theory could apply to why we should provide personal finance in school too. <laughs> so, right. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, we try to steer clear of politics as much as possible here, but <laughs> I, if we're if we're putting kids in cages, probably the personal finance aspect of helping immigrants is far, far, far from yeah. thought from anyone. 
I don't, like I said, I don't necessarily want to go down that path, but I think that's the importance of why you're doing what you're doing, right? I mean, that's why yeah. you've created this website mm -hmm. in your blog to, to provide that kind of support. So you mentioned earlier this idea of, and you know, I'm not integrated with the immigrant community, but I'm aware of certain rumors or anecdotes that we've heard that much of the immigrant community is used to putting money in jars or sticking it under their mattresses. Why is that the case? And what advantages, disadvantages maybe does that afford them? Yeah, I can give you a really clear example why that happens that my husband went through. So in his country, when he was growing up, when he was a teenager, there were something like 12 presidents in one year. Okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> and all of the bankers basically took all the money from the banks and left. This was in South America and like went to Miami <laughs> with everyone's <laughs> money. So like a lot of poor people lost all their money and there was nothing that could be done about it. So that's why, right? Like these things happen in other countries. It's really rare to have what we have here in the U.S. where you can have a bank account that's FDIC insured that, you know, up to a certain amount, if the economy completely crashes, the government will insure, what is it, up to 250000 Right. Mm -hmm. If it's FDIC insured. So we have that kind of basic sense of security of like, even if things went completely insane, like, hopefully that would still be a promise, right? And, you know, I lived in Egypt after college, and I, it happened to be the year the revolution happened. And so I saw how quickly entire institutions can just crumble. And, um, you know, there was a period where there was no government at all. And that happens in other countries sometimes. We haven't experienced that in the U.S., but it, it happens in other places. And so it's part of being resilient and being smart, honestly, in other countries to not rely on the banks. And so when you come from that culture your whole life and your family has experienced that their whole life, and then you come here, like, why would you think differently? Right. And so it's just assumed that that could be the case here. And it, I think it is part of the education that's needed to realize there is some level of security somewhat at least here that is different that tips things over that it becomes more strategic for you or smarter for you to actually use the financial system and use a bank account because it's more likely you can have your money safe there than under your bed where you could get robbed and have everything lost in immediately right yeah i'm curious if you've grown up under the paradigm that you can't necessarily trust the banking system and you move to the United States and you're even when you're as young as 20, but if you're 30 or 40, is, is that a paradigm that can even be changed? I think so. Yeah. I've seen it change for a lot of individuals. I really have for all different groups of immigrants. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it is an information issue. Right. And so that's why I comment it from the angle of, this is about empowering people and providing information. And I remember when my husband moved here and, you know, I was a law student at the time, like I should have been able to figure this out, you know, <laughs> and I was freaking out because I was researching and I had no idea if he was allowed to have a bank account or allowed to have a credit card. And, you know, thank God he had a visa. Imagine if, if he hadn't, how much more scary that would have been. And, there was nowhere on the internet that provided those answers easily. And 
the banks I would go to, you know, some were confused and didn't know. So it's, it's really complicated to figure out. Yeah. So I think if the banks can't figure it out or if they're not prepared, <laughs> that just shows yeah. how complicated it is, right? So you talk about your relationship with your husband and him coming to the United States. I think that that's something that's newer to our community, especially the LGBT community. So when DOMA was repealed, what did that open up these opportunities for queer couples to get together? How does that impact immigration? Well, the most significant change was um, the Obama administration made it possible after DOMA was knocked down for married couples to be able to petition for an LGBTQ spouse for a green card to get legal status. So we had for the first time ever people being able to sponsor their partners and get status there's a lot of people who had no avenue to do that, even though they were married, been living here for decades together. So it was a really significant change. I think it is precarious, the situation we're in now with the immigration policies changing so much. This month, even, I'm, I'm not sure if you all saw in the news, but the Trump administration announced they would no longer be giving visas to same-sex partners of diplomats or staffers at international organizations unless they are married. So mm. that brings a whole bunch of problems because in a lot of countries, people cannot get married, right? right? I saw a statistic only 12% of United Nations member states allow same-sex marriage. Wow. So yeah, so it, it has a lot of consequences and it also replicates the really terrible discrimination that a lot of these couples face in their own countries that right. is really dangerous. Um, it can also be coercing people to get married who might not want to. Right. So we're, yeah, we're starting to see some changes. Yeah. So I think for many of us in the United States, we're so grateful for the equality movement that we've had over the last uh, five to 10 years. Because let's see, DOMA was repealed in 2013, I think it was. And um, we've had these changes, but we ha we have to remember that we're not siloed. We can't just think of, uh, of ourselves or, or our own relationships. There is this massive potential for individuals who are in a relationship with someone who is documented or undocumented immigrant, and they have the struggles of trying to figure out how to represent their union, whether they're married or not. And like you said, it may be forcing some people to get married when they're not necessarily prepared. Maybe they haven't been together long enough to actually realize that that's truly what they want. So when someone is in that situation, when someone is an LGBT or, or non-LGBT couple, when they're thinking about an, one of those individuals being an immigrant, are there some things that they should be doing as a couple that they should be planning for financially? Yeah, um, there, there's definitely some things that I think couples in this situation should be thinking about that makes it a little bit different. So one for example, is helping the partner in the relationship who might be an immigrant to build a credit history if they haven't ever used credit in the U.S. That can be really important for the future if they ever want to be able to take out a loan or buy a home. And so something that can be done is, for example, co-signing on things on credit cards or accounts to help the partner be able to build that credit um, and improve their credit score. In general, I think a lot of immigrants do unfortunately face discrimination 
before banks and credit card companies. You know, there's banks and credit card companies who might be asking about immigration status when that's not required under the law. So I think that's a way that the non-immigrant partner can help, you know, use their power to empower their partner and and show up and assist them with getting those accounts set up, perhaps putting them as a beneficiary on their account. And one other thing I I generally recommend is something I call an immigrant empowerment fund. This is kind of like an emergency fund or rainy day fund. But the idea of it is to set aside money for immigration emergencies, because unless the non-citizen is a citizen, right, unless they become a citizen, deportation is a possibility. For example, if someone were to get a criminal conviction or something like that, that could cause problems. So to protect for those future situations, to have resources available, to make sure that the couple is prepared for that situation is important. Um, So for example, money can be saved up to help prepare for the cost of an immigration lawyer in case one is needed or for the fees for a green card application or for naturalization. It's really expensive just for the fees alone to the government to make these applications. I I just checked last night and um, right now for the green card application, just for the first out of two steps of that, it's $1,760 just for the first step. And then two years after, you know, there's another big fee. And then there's another fee for naturalization. So saving up in advance to give you options is really important. Even even if you're not sure if marriage is in the bucket is like something that you all want to do. I think just having options available in case you need it, in case there is an emergency, can be really helpful. You know, hopefully this doesn't happen to any of the listeners ever on the podcast, but like there's also increasing detention we're seeing of immigrants Mm -hmm. during immigration court proceedings. Um, And so it's important to have money saved up to pay a bond to get someone out of detention during their case, for example. And then one other thing to think about is creating like a paper trail. So for some types of immigration cases, you need to show how long you've been in the U.S. or show that you've been here a certain date. So having a bank account or credit card set up can be a really helpful way to establish those dates and have that record of when you're living in the country. And to also save those kinds of documents, for example, on Google Drive or something. Perhaps if you are married, just save a copy of your marriage license on Google Drive. You can easily find it mm-hmm. if you need it for an immigration reason or other immigration documents. It's interesting because in some ways, it almost feels like many of the things that you're suggesting are things that the LGBT community in general was doing in the 80s and 90s to mm. prove that their relationships were valid, to prove that that really? uh, they were a couple, that they had purchased a home together, that their families could not make the decisions, but that as, as couples, they were allowed to make the decisions or as a spouse or, you know, providing that living will or the medical directive, all those kinds of things. It just, it almost seems like we've gone back in time, 15, 20 Mm -hmm. years for individuals who are a part of a relationship where someone is an immigrant. And it's sad. It's unfortunate that that's the way it needs to be. But I think what you're highlighting is that's the way it needs to be right now. And we have to be prepared. We hope, clearly hope that there will be changes. And that there's things you can be doing that will mitigate that risk. And that even if something 
like that happens and it's a worst case scenario, you will be in a far better position if you take some of these steps to be prepared for it. And you have choices. Like if you can afford an immigration lawyer, there's studies that have shown you will be six times more likely to win your case just wow. because you have an immigration lawyer. Because there's no public defender in immigration court. Hmm. Most people are unrepresented and representing themselves, right? Oh, wow. Wow, I didn't so know that. Just, yeah, it's it's really crazy. So it really makes a significant difference having money set aside for these type of emergencies and can make the difference of whether or not you and your, your spouse can stay in the same country together. Gotcha. What's the ballpark estimate for an immigration attorney? Well, it's really hard to say. It can change a lot what type of case it is, where in, in the country you are. It really varies quite a bit because there's uh, many different types of immigration cases. Some are pretty easy and some are extremely complicated. Like if you have a, a complicated case fighting deportation in immigration court, it can be like ten to $15,000, wow. for example. And what would define a complicated case? What scenario is that? For example, if someone has criminal convictions, that can easily bar someone from being able to stay in the country or to be able to qualify for a defense to deportation. Mm -hmm. That's a very common one. You know, if someone has an asylum case and they have to have a psychological expert, a country conditions expert to really prove the case and provide evidence. I suppose also if if extended family is involved, I, you know, if you have children or you have mm -hmm. uh, maybe parents or siblings of the individual who's the immigrant and they have responsibilities for those individuals as well. I just can imagine yeah. there's just a massive variety. What you're saying here is that if you are an immigrant individual, whether you're documented or not, you need to be thinking about the financial possibilities and being prepared for those. What would you suggest that a couple who are together, whether they are married or not, what would you suggest they do to prepare both legally and financially? Are there, I, I understand this whole idea of having this immigration emergency fund. Um, mm -hmm. Any other suggestions? Just one more thing to add. I, I mean, the fund is really what I do recommend because a lot of it is financial costs that can make or break the ability to fight, to stay here. What One other thing to think about too is, you know, a lot of immigration cases, particularly sponsoring family to get a green card, will have to happen um, from abroad through like a U.S. embassy in the country where that person's from. So to be, you know, have a plan of how you might be able to make an income if you have to go together to live in the country of origin wow. of the immigrant partner or a way to be able to maintain communication through that or to continue the relationship and have those conversations if that's a possibility of how you would handle that. Um, I think also for couples where one person does not have any lawful status it may make sense to think about how you want to structure the finances in a way that's going to be most strategic for the couple and the family, you know, perhaps putting the finances under the name of the person who does have status, who is a citizen, so that they can be protected. And that so it's easy, you know, if, if something happens to the other person to be able to send money easily and things like that. 
Gotcha. So what would you recommend the amount of money that people save in a immigrant empowerment account? Oh, that's a good question. I think the more, (laughs) honestly, like the more, the better. I mean, it's similar to just an emergency fund, right? I think in general, having an emergency fund, you know, is good for everyone to do. And then it's just what you want to use it for. It depends also like how risky the person's situation is. You know, if you have someone who is already in removal proceedings facing deportation, there's going to be a much higher need for resources to be saved up for a lawyer than someone who does have a green card and is on a path to becoming a citizen unless, you know, something crazy happens. So it can really vary a lot. You know, it sounds very similar, like you mentioned, to uh, emergency savings that we typically would have. There's a risk spectrum. That's kind of hard Mm -hmm. to say. If you are a dual income household and you're earning significant amount of money, but also have a significant amount of financial responsibilities, you're going to want to have more in emergency savings. If you are Mm -hmm. a single income household with very, very few financial responsibilities, your uh, emergency savings may not need to be as robust. But you're saying here that uh, obviously they need to take this kind of the same level of things into consideration, that the more risk that's involved, whether the individual is documented or undocumented, whether there's any extenuating circumstances for the immigrant, those kinds of things need to be taken into consideration. Definitely. So how does that happen? How can Mm -hmm. a couple who are together, and I will kind of say in the back of my mind, there's all sorts of maybe fears or scarcity triggers that go into play here. But let's first talk about how does this happen? How can a couple create an account or how can they work together to have an emergency savings? What does that look like without one of them feeling like either they're going to be taken advantage of? (laughs) Yeah, that is, I think, something that we can probably both collaborate on, (laughs) the different perspectives of how to navigate that with these factors. You know, I think there has to just be like really honest communication. You know, if one person does not have status, that makes them really in a vulnerable situation financially, depending on the other person potentially, and can also raise other issues in the reverse. So I think just, you know, being able to really be honest about it, you know, if it makes sense for that relationship, maybe have some kind of agreement about it and formally or not, whatever. If one person does not have status, an immigrant who is undocumented can have a bank account. Um, there's a way to do it with getting something called an ITIN number, an individual tax identification number. And that can be used instead of a social security number to be able to register for a bank account. So that's a way for that person to kind of protect themselves and have a say and on the account that they're sharing. You bring up this this idea of an ITIN, and I, I know that there's <laughs> there's this fallacy in belief in the United States that there are all of these undocumented workers who are working here and they're not paying taxes into the system. And this ITIN is kind of their entryway into making sure they're contributing back, right? A lot of them do this through this ITIN. Not only is it good for them financially to set up bank accounts, but as well as participate in the economy. Oh, yeah. There's millions and millions and millions of dollars being put into the tax system by undocumented immigrants who will not receive any benefit from doing it. Wow. It's crazy. So 
people do it for a variety of reasons, but you know, a lot of people feel like I live here, I should be contributing and paying taxes, even though I'm not going to get the social security benefits from doing it. You know, other people recognize that by doing that, you know, if someday in the future there's immigration reform, even though that doesn't sound very likely right now, but it could happen. It's happened before. It happened in 1986. Right. If we have immigration reform again, you know, having a record showing you've been paying taxes for decades without receiving any benefit is a really great way to show, um, you know, you have good character and you're an upstanding member of society. Same thing if the person ever is, is in immigration court. Being able to have a record of paying taxes looks super impressive, I think, nice. um, to show that. That makes sense. I'll agree that the immigration system is horrible, <laughs> um, but it is what it is. So I wonder, is there an ideal path to immigrating over to the U.S. that doesn't put them in such precarious situations? You know, there's actually very few ways to legally immigrate to the U.S., and that's a big misunderstanding. You'll hear a lot of people say, why can't you just get in line? Or like, I had to wait in line, so why don't you do that too, right? But what a lot of people don't know is that there really isn't a line for most people. There's a reason we have about 11 million undocumented immigrants in the country. Trust me, many of those people would prefer to have status and not be undocumented. Their lives would be a lot easier. But there really is no line for a lot of people the main way that people are able to get lawful immigration status is through family, sponsoring them, family who's a U.S. citizen or a green card holder. And a lot of people don't have that. So there's very few options otherwise for most people. You know, back in the day, there were more possibilities for people to get status or visa sponsored through an employer. That has become very rare. Otherwise, you know, some people, if they are already facing deportation and they're super lucky and one of the few who can win their case, like they might end up getting a status that way. But that is, in my opinion, the worst way to get a status because it's very, very rare for that to work out and mm -hmm. super risky. So I appreciate what you're doing and I appreciate the efforts that you're taking. And obviously, we know that there is definitely an overlap of the LGBT population and the immigrant population. I think definitely we see that here in Denver, where there is a large Hispanic population that we know are from Mexico or from Central or South America. They may be living here legally or illegally. So as communities, how do we work together to achieve better outcomes for both documented and undocumented? This question I'm really excited to talk about with you all. You know, I think there are so many divisions that can occur in marginalized communities where people are discriminated against, and it sometimes can become very siloed. But at the end of the day, a lot of these groups, in particular the immigrant community and the LGBTQ community, are both fighting for equal rights. It's the same issue, right? And both groups would benefit a lot from supporting each other and are experiencing the same levels of discrimination or being viewed as the other or feeling unaccepted in society. So like, imagine if these groups could come together and, and really be empowering each other, how much stronger it would be against those who are discriminating against these groups. So 
you know, one message I've heard you all talk about that I really appreciate and I think is important to reiterate is that um, these communities need to be financially strong to empower each other um, and to lift up their communities and to be able to fight for their rights. And, and money is a really helpful way to do that. And having resources is a helpful way to do that. And being able to um, support immigrants' rights organizations or LGBTQ rights organizations or other organizations of groups that are being victimized. So unfortunately, there is some degree of homophobia in many other countries that can complicate this. Mm -hmm. But it's really, you know, like a red herring because that's just holding everyone back by having those divisions. Um, And I, I have seen that is one really incredible benefit of the United States that I've seen a lot of people from other countries who come from homophobic societies to learn to really respect the gay community here um, and to understand how we're all one and we're all human. So that is one potential, I think, that is possible in this country today still with these communities. I kind of will go back to what you were saying earlier that 12% of the nations that are in the United Nations have laws that protect or allow for marriage and for the LGBT community. And you just have to think of the millions of LGBT individuals who are living in countries where they are at risk every single day because of who they are. We may think back to what it was like in the 50s and 40s for LGBT individuals living in maybe the South or in some of the rural areas of this country who were slaughtered. And that's the same fears that some of these immigrants are, or some of these individuals in foreign countries are dealing with. So you can imagine why so many of them would want to seek refuge in a country like the United States, because Although we'd love to say we are the land of the free and the most progressive, we're certainly one of the uh, those out at the forefront, but there are other countries that have led the fight for equality. There are so many people who want to get in this country simply because of those kinds of freedoms. There has to be a reason why and, and support that we can all give each other. Yeah, it's such a good point. And I've, I've seen so many people fleeing their countries and coming here for that exact reason. Um, so there's there's really quite a lot of intersection between the communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is, I guess, for my community, especially, I, I have to think of the people who say, well, just get in line or go back to where you came from and wait your turn. And some of them are being sent back to a death sentence, right? Exactly. So... It's easy for us to say, go back to where you came from and wait your turn, but their turn may be another couple of days and then their life is over. Yeah. So uh, once right. again, even more of a reason for us to reach out to those individuals who are trying to come to this country who are looking for freedom. Yeah, and I think that's a really good reason why we shall be supporting the rights of, of immigrants and improving the immigration system. Because, you know, that is in some parts of this country viewed as a protected way to get asylum and get protection from persecution and murder and torture through the immigration system. And that is a protection that still happens today, but it is very much under threat um, with the challenges that we're seeing in the immigration system. 
Well, Dana, thank you so much for coming on and sharing uh, what you're working on and the community that you work with and the integration or intersection with our community. I think we appreciate that. Are there any last comments that you'd like to share with us or advice you would give to someone who is in one of these situations? Although there's a lot of uncertainty and scary stuff going on these days um, in the immigration system, just to understand that there are things you can be doing to best protect yourself um, or best protect people you care about who could be facing that situation. And planning ahead is really an empowering way to have agency over a really terrible situation. So I would just encourage everyone to educate themselves and, you know, check out immigrantfinance.com and see what information is out there specific to the immigrant community, learning about personal finance, follow other personal finance podcasts like this one and learn as much as you can, because it can only help you best protect yourself and have power moving forward. Yeah, it always bowls me over that no matter what the topic is at hand that we have on this show, so often the solution is Preparation. Yeah. <laughs> planning and preparation. And, you know, it res- resonates with this topic as well as most, most of the personal finance topics that we discuss. Absolutely. Well, thank you all so much for having me on. Definitely. So besides your website, immigrantfinance.com, how can listeners connect with you? Um, we're also on Facebook and Instagram, just at Immigrant Finance and Twitter at Immigrant Fanonk, no E. It was taken. <laughs> and um, I'm happy to chat with anyone. My email is hello at immigrantfinance.com. Thank you very much. We appreciate your coming on the Thank show. Thank you all. You Take bet. care. Thank you, Adina, for sharing such personal and compelling stories with us and our audience. Learning more about the lived experiences of the real people you know who only want to achieve the American dream provided color and heart to stories that are often overlooked and glossed over in the evening news. Before you go, we want to remind our audience that the Budget Buster Bundle is available now to solve all of your budgeting problems. If you want to be able to tell your family next Thanksgiving that you've been rocking a budget and achieving all of your life goals, the Budget Buster Bundle is for you. Get it now by going to debtfreeguys.com forward slash Budget Buster. We'll talk with you next week. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.